0: Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. We're all every one of us, creatures of habit. We love having certain patterns in our life so that most of the time, most of the days, don't have too many surprises. We're okay with a few surprises, right? But you get too many, and it's kind of a little bit overwhelming if things just start popping up. So we try and make our lives a little bit have patterns to them. Something about us as human beings... So in one sense, we're all traditionalists. Now there's a little tension, right? Who's a traditionalist and who's not? We're all traditionalists. We all like our little traditions, right? How did you enjoy your traditions this morning? Were they good? You had your traditions, right? What time you get up? When you go to the bathroom, what you do with your hair, whatever, and how you change your clothes, and you put your pants on first, or your shirt on, or shoes, and then you, you do whatever. I mean, you've got a tradition. We've got our habits. Now, with Hurricane Florence, a lot of things got disrupted. For some people, very astronomically. I mean, it's hard to imagine what some people are going through. Lives for, forever on this earth disrupted. But for us, who most of us, again, didn't really get too affected, again, a lot of our habits got disrupted. Some of us felt a little bit out of sync when everything was going on. We didn't have our usual habits. Maybe we didn't go to school, maybe we didn't go to work, maybe we hit the TV button, but oh, wait, I don't have any TV. Hit the lights on, oh, no lights. I mean, we had to figure out other things to do, and so we got greatly out of sync Interruptions of life can be good. They can make us think a lot more deeply about life. What are the significant realities of life? Because face it, for most of us, we get caught up in little, stupid, piddly, insignificant stuff, which becomes glorified, so tremendous, whatever, we don't know what to do, we get overwhelmed. And most of those things are not that big. So these interruptions cause us again to remember what is ultimately important. And so we don't just go through life, but we... Live life. In church, we can actually do church, but not actually understand what is going on. One of those things that we sometimes do in church that we don't have a great understanding of is the Lord's Supper or communion. It's one of those activities that we do once in a while here, but sometimes we don't really understand what is going on in it. If you grew up in the church... Probably the way you learn most about it was by watching and imitating others. So now if we have Lord's Supper and you've been in church for many years, you pretty much know what to expect, unless something different might be done. But usually you know how this is going to go. And generally speaking, you know what this is about. Christ died for us. We're saved by him. Now, sometimes we may not have much more of a deeper understanding of that. And this is the thing we want to start working on here as a church is our understanding of the Lord's Supper. Every time now, for, by God's will and grace, every time we have communion, we're going to do a part of a series here to try to understand what communion is about so we're not just going through the actions. Probably too often, this is just a guess, But pastors and churches have not taught on this enough to really give us an understanding of what is taking place when we have the Lord's Supper. Think with me just for a second about why this is so important that we have this understanding of the Lord's Supper. Let me give you three quick reasons. First of all, Christ gave this table, this event, experience, to the church, meaning he gifted it to us and he ordained it. So technically, we call the Lord's Supper one of the ordinances of the church. Ordinances, ordinances relate to the word ordained. Christ commanded, ordained that we do this on a continual basis. But it's not just a command, it's actually a gift. A gift of the grace of Christ to us to better understand his work of salvation. So we step back and say, okay, this is a gift from Christ to the church and it's also a command. Better think about this. What does this really mean? What is this about, right? Second of all, it's a table to honor the master of the table. Christ is the master of the table. He is the master of the banquet, of the feast. And so it is done for his honor because this table represents what he has done. And so as we come to this table, we're thinking about what Christ did on the cross for us, and all the blessings now come our way through him. So we are to honor and to revere and to glorify Christ during this time. That is something you just don't do casually. It's something you think through. Thirdly, and this is probably more, much more on the negative side, we have to acknowledge it, Why is it so important to understand? Is because we know in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 11, because some people were not partaking of this very thing, we could say Christ killed them. Christ took their life. Just because they were not participating in this correctly and they were dishonoring Christ. I don't know about you, for me it goes, "Woo!" I had better think about this a little bit. This is very, very serious. If Christ actually took out, killed his own people because they were mishandling the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 gives us explicit instructions in the outworking of the Lord's Supper. But we're not going to deal with that passage here today. In time we will. We're going to go back to the beginning of it, which goes back to the Passover meal, this meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he was crucified. So again, this was a Passover meal. We're not going to talk much about Passover here today. We will get to this. But it was very, very important tradition, a celebration that the Israelites had, the Jewish people, to celebrate this great act of redemption and salvation that God performed in defeating Pharaoh and the so-called gods, the Egyptians. God said, I want my people back. Pharaoh, get out of the way. Your so-called gods, move out of the way. I am taking my people for my own name. And God did that miraculously through all different kinds of signs of his power and his authority. And they were then to celebrate it yearly. So now on this night before Jesus is betrayed, and going to be crucified, Jesus takes his Passover meal and he transforms it into something related to it, but a little bit different. Because Jesus' great act of salvation, redemption on the cross is ultimately what the Passover prefigured and pointed to. So how, no matter how great that event was in the past the Jewish people, And what God did in redeeming his people, what Jesus did at the cross is far, far greater. And what the Passover meal was, ultimately was to point ahead to Jesus. So what Jesus is doing here this night when he institutes the Lord's Supper, he is saying that all these Passover meals and what this all represents was ultimately about me. Passover was always ultimately about Jesus because according to 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus is the Passover lamb. I look up that verse. It might be verse 7. He is the, the Passover lamb. How many thousands of Passover lambs were killed? Uh, who knows? But then the one came, and that really is truly the Passover Lamb Jesus. So much meaning here in the Lord's Supper to explore. But what is the essence of the Lord's Supper? Let me give you two components of it and give you a definition. First of all, I would say that at the heart of it it is a reaffirmation. Reaffirmation. So most time when we come to church, what we're doing is we are reaffirming things that we know and believe. We just got done singing, right? One of the aspects of our singing is reaffirming what we already believe. And this is what Lord's Supper is. We already know things. We believe certain truths about Christ. But as we come to this table, we are reaffirming them. We're saying, I hold to these truths, these very dear truths. They are my life. Because what Christ has done, I have gained all these things. And so now I am reaffirming these things that Christ is my salvation. The Lord is my salvation. Do this in remembrance. Do this in reaffirming what you know of me, Christ is saying. Second component is fellowship. And this is why another name for the Lord's Supper is communion. Uh, a, A church really is in some sense a fellowship. And what we do here on Sunday mornings is we fellowship with Christ. And now as we have the Lord's Supper, we can say in a very unique way, We are fellowshipping with Christ. Christ is here through the work of the Spirit. And so we are communing with Christ. He is speaking to us, the Holy Spirit, and He is building faith in us. He is building hope in us all the more. And these are just some of the things that Christ is doing here with us during communion. So what is communion? If I could give a definition, is a time that we enjoy fellowship with Christ. As we reaffirm with our hearts and our minds the glorious salvation that he brings to us through his death. So as we're fellowshipping with Christ, we are making these reaffirmations. And we again, we are exploring the great salvation he has brought to us and is still bringing to us and will bring to us through all eternity that come to us through his death. So this morning, I want us to look at uh, the first reaffirmation of the Lord's Supper, and it is this. We reaffirm the reality of the Father giving the Son to a sacrificial death for our salvation. So first thing we're reaffirming is that the Father gave the Son, Jesus, as a sacrificial death for our salvation. We talk about this night here. We're looking at Luke 22. Jerusalem would be greatly packed of people. Pilgrims from all over different nations would come. Uh, Families would be reunited. Pilgrims are coming back home for this great yearly celebration. Most people who lived outside of Jerusalem and uh, the Promised Land area there uh, maybe only got to come once, maybe twice in a lifetime, if that, to come for this event. It was packed, kind of like Times Square, on Yer's eve, full of people. Um, and Jerusalem had been greatly stirred up because there was a strange man from Galilee. He'd been doing some things mostly in Galilee, but a few times he'd come down to Jerusalem and done some strange things which greatly agitated different Jewish leaders who just wanted peace. They wanted peace really for themselves. And especially this time because Pilate was in town. He would always come during this feast to make sure that the peace was there because if he didn't, then his head would be on the chopping block with Mr. Caesar. In a few hours here from this event, Luke 22, through different acts of envy and hatred and deceit and evasion, people saving their necks, Jesus would be put to death and very few, if any, including disciples, really understood what this event was about. To most people, Jesus was just an agitator, a shameful false messiah, a criminal, a lunatic, maybe even a martyr. But then the story became known and preached and written down that this indeed was the Son of God who was fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies, and he was doing it mostly through his death. And now we understand that this is the Son of God, the Father saying the Son to be this sacrificial sacrifice for us. And through Jesus, we have this salvation. And I'm using the term salvation to encompass all of the benefits that we have through Christ and remedying and fixing the effects of sin. Before we go much further, we have to talk about what it means to be a sacrificial death. So we step back and think, no, what, what's a sacrifice? Okay. First century, most everybody offered sacrifices. Back then, you had temples from all different kinds of gods, and you would go down the temples and you made sacrifices. And you even made sacrifices in your own home, especially the Romans would, to their ancestors and acknowledge of them and other gods as well. So they were really good at offering sacrifices. And really, kind of two components of it, really. One was, the sacrifice was done to say, God, deity, whoever you are, please, please, please give me this. My spouse and I, we can't have a child, please. Or we're going to go on the sea or the lake or the ocean, and we want safety of travel. We're going to plant our crops. Oh God, we know that you're in charge of agriculture. Please give to us good crops this year. And so please. The second one would be, thank you. (laughs) Now, if they didn't get what they asked of the gods, they must thought that the gods were angry at them. That's why they didn't get whatever they asked for. But if they got supposedly what they asked for, they said, thank you. Thank you, Poseidon. Thank you, Zeus. Thank you so much for giving these gifts to me. And they made sacrifices. But in the Bible... Sacrifice most relates to one aspect, and that is sin. Because Yahweh, the Lord, is a moral God. The other gods were not moral. In fact, they in their own actions were considered to be immoral, and that was okay. Not only is Yahweh, the Lord, moral, He is holy, and He requires of His people to be holy. And so sacrifices were mainly to have a Right relationship with the holy God when you are unclean and a sinner. And because humans sin because of Adam's trespass, sacrifices are needed. Old Testament, you had animals. But animals are a little bit distant from us as human beings, aren't they? They're not like us. In fact, according to Genesis 1, we are to rule over animals. So how can an animal be given in our place to take care of our sin? We're supposed to rule over them. So there's a distance between us and animals. So even the Old Testament, in some sense, as the Jewish people offered these sacrifices, there was still a distance between people and God. And what was needed was a true sacrifice. A divine human Sacrifice. Not a human sacrifice that some of the other religions made where they actually offered people to the gods. Who would be, these people would be greatly unwilling to do this. Jesus is the Son of God, and he willingly did this for the sake of his Father. This was not forced on him. Jesus willingly did this. I want to talk three aspects about the death of Jesus, and we're going to do this fairly quickly. <laughs> Hang on. First of all, the death of Jesus on the cross is central as a sacrificial death. It is central. Central to the plan of God in bringing salvation to the world. God's plan of salvation has many components to it, and we read about it in the Bible. But the centerpiece of it is Christ on the cross. And that means for us in our lives, the very centerpiece for us is the cross. There is nothing more that we would like to talk about than the cross. A lot of people talk about, I'm so blessed, you're so blessed. Many times the cross isn't even mentioned. The only way that we as sinful human beings are blessed by God in any significant way is not because we recovered from our sickness, but it's because we've recovered from sin. And Christ is the only one that could do that. And because He died on the cross, That is the central blessing we have through which all other blessings come. And this is why it's very important that we think about Christ's death, even though his teaching is very important, his works of love and compassion, his miracles are very important. Unless Christ dies on the cross, his teaching just damns us. His miracles are a mockery of us who get to enjoy the internet for 70 years, who get to eat fancy foods and have nice cars for 70 years, but yet we die eternally. That does nothing for us. We need Christ's death. And this is what Christ has done for us. And that's why we see the ministry of Jesus at the very beginning. We know through the writings of the Gospels what's going to happen, but if you were following Jesus in the first century, at the beginning of his ministry, you would think, this is going to go great. This is wonderful. Christ, indeed, is going to be this great ruler who's going to restore the honor of Israel and is going to put Israel back on the map. But then Jesus started talking about things that Peter and the disciples didn't really want to hear. We have many places in Luke where Jesus starts talking about the Son of Man's suffering refers to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, in Luke 18, 31 through 34, Jesus says that I, as the Son of Man, is going to be delivered to the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked, shamefully treated. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to be killed. Because the central work of Jesus is the cross. How different is really for us, isn't it? I'm assuming that most of you have been to a funeral before. What do you talk about at funerals? Besides the gospel and the word of God, hopefully. Usually what happens is they talk about a person's life. They were born, they married so-and-so, they had, maybe had kids, and they worked at this job, and they did these activities, and you start talking about all the events of their life because that was so important. It's completely opposite of Jesus. The central piece of Jesus is not in some sense so much as life, although that is important. The central aspect of the life of Jesus is his death. And that's what we are remembering today. Yes, we are remember what Jesus taught and, and what he did, all those types of things. But the central piece is his death. Because death is all over life. It mars and smears and mocks Any kind of life and joy and happiness in this life. A grave awaits us, a tombstone awaits us with our name on it. We're all sitting in the pit of death while we live. Thankfully, we live in this country so we can be a lot more comfortable in our pit of death. While we deny and pretend this, Jesus came to die. What we fear the most, Jesus came to do and to take care of for us. So he became a sacrifice, a sacrificial death. Ironically, through his death, we live. It's the strangest way ever concocted to bring about the greatest good. And that's God's great wisdom. Who could ever imagine saving a people to such a degree through the death, a shameful death of one? So this means that all the roads in God's plan of salvation lead us to Christ and his death. And all the roads leading away from the cross are about the cross as well. God showed his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Second of all, about the death of Jesus. death of Jesus, he died as a full human being, full human being. Jesus was true humanity as it ought to be. True humanity is not sinful. Jesus showed us what the essence of true humanity was all about. In the early church, there were different heresies of people who denied that Jesus really was a full human being. I don't think most of anyone here would deny that. But practically speaking, How much does that really make an impact in our lives when we think about Jesus? I think possibly some of us might think that Jesus, when he was on earth, because he was God, even though he was human, Jesus just kind of like floated through life, never stubbed his toe. He was just kind of living on a higher plane above everybody else, and people just kind of were just in awe of him as he walked by and saying, wow. Not even close. The scriptures are clear that Jesus is a full human being, and one of the most explicit ways of knowing that is by his birth. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus had a human birth. There was a divine, supernatural conception of Jesus, but he had an ordinary human birth. Mary probably screamed in pain and cried. Okay? This is real birth. You think about that. I wonder what's going through Mary's mind. Because in Genesis 3, as part of the curse, the woman is told that in your giving of birth, you will have great pain. Think about Jesus coming in this world to bear our curse. Here was Jesus being born of a woman who when she was giving birth to Jesus was in some sense experiencing the curse even as Jesus was being born. You don't think Jesus can identify with us? Jesus was tempted, hungry, thirsty. He was so tired that there was a big storm one time. Everybody else was sleeping. Everybody else is awake, but Jesus is sleeping. He just got tired. He did probably fall as a kid. He got bumps and scratches and bled. This is Jesus. He's not a fake human being who can just kind of come and show us, you know, be human a little bit and then somehow still transfer us to salvation. No. Just like in some sense an animal by its death, cannot transfer to us all the effects of salvation, neither can Jesus unless he is full human being with no sin. That's the only way that all those blessings of salvation can get to us, human to human. And he did that, and that's why we have the Lord's Supper. Jesus did this, there was physical elements, and so today, if you take this, you're going to have physical elements in your hand. Jesus didn't say, do this in remembrance of me and sit back and just let your mind go. He said, no, take this piece of bread and hold it. This is my body broken for you. So you get this piece of bread today, you can feel it. You can touch it.
1: Because
0: Jesus had a real human body that was beaten and nailed. That's what you need to think about when you're in communion. That Jesus became fully human for me, to do all this for me. And he understands as my mediator what I'm going through as a human being. And then you take the cup. You look at it and say, wow, that looks like blood. That's why it's that color. To remind us, again, of the blood that flowed from Jesus. Jesus understands. There's so many people today talking about bullying If anybody was bullied, it was Jesus. Anything that you're going through in life, Jesus can understand and he sympathizes with you. He is our great high priest. Lastly, the death of Jesus was a purposeful and planned cruel death. It was a purposeful, planned, cruel death. All planned by the Father the hands of sinful men. Luke 24, verse 44, after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus talks about that everything that was written about him and the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it was fulfilled in the death of Jesus. So it says there in verse 46, thus is written, that the Christ should suffer and on a third day rise from the dead. Did you catch that? It says that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It doesn't say that the Christ should die and then be raised. It says the Christ should suffer. The essence in some sense of the death of Jesus is suffering. Jesus just didn't have to die. He had to suffer. He had to suffer a cruel death because of the heinous nature of sin because your sin and my sin is so terribly God-awful. He had to suffer like this. So instead of saying he died, you can just say he suffered. Tremendous suffering. We don't have time to go through this today, but as he went through all the suffering before he got the cross, as he was scourged and whipped and then put on the cross with nails, joints being dislocated you don't get to put a sling on it and fix it you just stay there in that agony of dislocations pushing up on the nails and his feet to breathe so that he wouldn't suffocate so you got a choice do you suffocate or do you somehow lift yourself up on the nails to breathe and as you breathe your rib cage would be in so much pain you don't know if you want to breathe but you need to breathe so what do you do It is devised to be a terrible, torturous, long, grueling death. There's some other violent ways to kill people, but it happens pretty fast. This is meant to lengthen the pain and to make the pain grow and grow as time grows and increases. Isaiah 53 prophesies about Jesus. Listen to the words used of Jesus. I'm just going to read the words, not the sentences. Griefs, sorrows, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds, oppressed, crushed, put to grief, anguish, poured out his soul. It's pretty overwhelming, isn't it? When people looked at Jesus on the cross, apart from a few people as read earlier, most people thought, what a pitiful man. To go out of the world like this? Wow. Yet through this suffering, we have been saved. Look what it says there in verse 20, Luke 22. Mike the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that's poured out for you. It's poured out for you, is new covenant in my blood. This is done for you in your place as a substitute for you. Cruel, purposeful, planned death. Five times in the Quran it says that one soul shall not bear another person's burden. Do you know why that's in the Quran? Because of Jesus. Because they disagree with it. Again, Islam came after Christianity. The cross, right? And that was put there intentionally to say that what Jesus did had no bearing for anybody else. One person cannot do this for another person. In fact, the Muslims do not believe that Jesus was crucified. It's an error in the Bible, or somebody else took his place at the last second. They refuse to believe that Jesus was crucified. One writer says this, For Christ enduring the mockery of the cross was the essence of his mission. The work of Muhammad is based on being honored and the work of Christ is based on being insulted. In fact, Muslims today believe they honor Christ more because they refuse to believe that Christ was crucified. If Jesus really was a special person, a prophet, however they essentially believe him to be, Why would God treat him like this? God should honor him. And this is what the difference is between Jesus and Muhammad. And this is what the difference between a follower of Allah and the follower of Jesus is. We have a shameful cross. That's what we put our hope in. Because this reminds us of our sin. The shameful, cruel death of Jesus was because of the shame of our sin. Acts 2.23, the death of Jesus was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. One of the things that we are affected with today in our culture is the trivialization of sin. Sin has always been glorified by humanity always has been. in our society today we have new means of glorifying it. We highlight and glorify sin in movies, in TV and cell phones and in the internet. And the more and the more we imbib of these things, this doesn't mean a whole lot. Because sin is something you can laugh at. Adultery, living together, having sex. Hey, that's a great show. Taking God's name in vain. Uh, what's, when's season two coming on? We wonder why sometimes this has no meaning to us. Because where is sin? If we're not careful. We Christians in this culture are beginning to tolerate more and more sin, the more and more we tolerate with our eyes, with our ears, and we take in. And you might say, well, that doesn't happen to me. How did you get to be so great? Christ is to be our life. And that means we have to deal with sin as it is. If you want to know what sin is, just stare at the cross. Meditate on the cross because that's your sin. I heard this past week a dad talking to his son, and when he would go by a cemetery, he would say this to his son. Remember Satan is a liar. So we should not believe lies that we tell ourselves. We should not believe lies from others and the world. Sin is deadly. Ask Jesus. Ask Jesus if sin is deadly. Elders, you want to come forward? Deacons? Deacons? So, here at, at Emmanuel, we have, in some sense, an open table, which means you don't have to be a member of our church. Um, you just need to be able to reaffirm, reaffirm heart and mind that Christ is your Savior, that your whole hope of salvation is found in Him, not partially, but completely. And that by your faith in Christ, you've been saved and purchased by Christ, and you are forever His. And if you have that confidence, you are encouraged to participate in this with uh, reflection as well as with great joy in Christ. Um, if that's not true of you, encouraged to let this pass. Or again, as we are told in First Corinthians 11, if you are not reconciled with somebody, you've not done your part to fix that relationship, you also should not participate in this. So, uh, Tim, would you pray for the bread? Father. So we do feel bread in our hands and that Christ took on a human body for us so that he might suffer for a day be raised Lord Jesus the night betrayed took bread and after giving thanks he broke it so this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me